welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Sunday Deep Dive episode. We got Brad Freeman on. I think this is our fourth episode, so we're at the monthly uh, start here with Brad, or is it five? I think this is five. Yeah, this Uh, might be number five. All right, we're getting into the right now. We're getting into the groove. Six. Six. Wow. I was really discounting us there. Uh, (laughs) Time has flown, but Brad, how are we doing today? Uh, I know that NanoX is a company you followed and there's some big news this week. We were talking about that before. A lot of excitement. Yeah, it's been that's been uh pretty pretty wild this week. It opened it got the the first FDA clearance that it's been seeking on the on the X-ray intellectual property that it's been developing for almost a decade. So um, was very excited about that. The stock went from like 40 to 70 in pre, pre-market on Monte and then now right back to where it was. Um, so I've been using the opportunity to, to add a little bit, but that's a, well. it's a, it's an interesting story. I'll say, well, we were a bit, you know, it's a pre-revenue company. So we were a bit skeptical and looking at it, but uh, it'll be interesting to follow. What yeah, is rightfully sure. so on, on the, on the skepticism for sure. I mean, there, there was a lot, there still is a lot to, to prove for, for the company. Um, and and I, I'd say um, people should really dig in and do their homework on this one before buying it, because there are a lot of loud voices who think very negative thoughts about this company. So if you're going to, if you're going to buy it, be all in for sure. It's, it's turning into a battleground stock for sure. Definitely. Uh, we have a new sales pitch though, before we get to Olo, we're talking Olo just so everyone knows. Right. I think you already mentioned that, but uh, our new sponsor, do you want to talk about it? Yes. So it is called Potential Multibaggers. Now, you may know what this is. Uh, it is from the account at From Value on Twitter. And this is a service through Seeking Alpha, and they're seeking to find stocks that can go up 10 times over the next 10 years. So really looking for those companies that are outperformers and are compounding at 26% per year. Right, you so want to talk some of the examples yeah, that they have in so- the past? Uh, first of all, if you've ever engaged with Chris on Twitter or anything like that, we, he's a friend of the show. He's been on here. We really enjoy him. Uh, and he's a great analyst. I don't know if he'd call himself an analyst, but he is a great analyst. And some of the, some of his picks were Shopify at $77. It's like 1100 now, uh, C limited at 54, Okta at 64, Roku at 113, Square at 75, Livongo at 24, the list goes on. And this is only out of 23 potential multi-bagger picks. So, so it's, it's not like he's just spraying and praying. These are not, you know, it's not just picking every right. stock and watching them go. These are a concentrated basket of companies. And it, it is, in all seriousness, one of the best track records of recent years that yeah. I've seen. Yep. And if you want to become a multi, as they are called, you can go to either Seeking Alpha and look up From Growth to Value, Google from growth to value or potential multi-baggers or find Chris at from value on Twitter. Uh, no promo code for us like seven investing, but we think both those services are fantastic. We'll be talking about both as potential services yeah. for people to have, but yeah, just we'll throw check a it link out. in there too. I think we'll throw a link in the description in the, in the description. If you're but having trouble, feel free. 
if you start talking with Chris, I know they do like weekly discussions, I believe, or maybe not weekly, but they you can discuss with them. Uh, feel free to tell them CCM sent you. Yeah, for sure. All right, enough with that. We're talking to Olo. Um, great company. I don't know. I, I'm a little off track after the ad. Sorry, it was the first time we did that, but we'll toss it over to Ryan uh, because this is a, what did they IPO like three weeks ago or something like that. So really new to the public market. It's going to be interesting to talk about. So it's uh, Olo is short for online ordering and its goal is basically to help restaurants customize and manage their entire digital ordering process. Um, and they primarily sell to multiple so multi-location restaurants. It's not just mom and pop shops. It's more like it's national chains, international chains. So Applebee's, Chili's, Shake Shack, Wingstop, all the um, high diet and the fine Cheesecake Factory. I mean, there's the it's the list goes on. Uh, but the the point is, those are sort of the bigger chains. I think they have 400 brands altogether. Um, and the way they sell is through three different products. So they have mobile ordering. This is their white label solution and it's basically it's this is how you customize your mobile ordering process and so uh you subscribe to the solution and then you can you can go from web experience mobile app um phone orders they all get processed into a single place but then your customer interface on that mobile order you can design and customize it a little bit um so if you've ever used the example i use is sweet green if you've ever used their mobile ordering process, which I have, it's really nice. They've gone through Olo to do that. Um, and then you can also, with this subscription as the restaurant, you can manage your menu inventory and uh, create changes in real time. So there's never anything wrong on that side. And then there's dis dispatch. So once you've received an order where it's uh, like a delivery order, you can pick the del delivery service. Um, so it's, Sometimes, you know, you think about all the third-party delivery services, DoorDash, uh, Uber Eats, Grubhub. Gosh, am I missing any? There's a lot. I don't know. I saw, I've saw. i seen the name GoPuff floating around lately. I have no idea what that is either. And anyway, So many. There's so many. There's Yeah, so you can do that, or you can pick your own delivery team based on a number of stuff. So cost, pricing, uh, time for delivery. You can. It's basically you're aggregating them all and picking the best delivery service to use. Uh, and then Rails is the last um, module or product. And this basically helps you uh, integrate your partnership with a third-party platform. So if a customer goes through DoorDash or Grubhub and they go to that app, they need to know that your menu is up to date. Um, yeah, I've had that issue. Right. And so that, and this, the rails feature allows you to update that stuff all in real time. And then the other part is it also throttles down. So if you subscribe to this product, actually, sorry, it's not, I don't think it's subscription. I think it's on a transactional basis, but those orders end up going to the same place as your mobile orders, web orders, phone orders, that kind of thing. And so um, the, the first one, the mobile ordering, that is their main subscription thing. But then the other two on a per transaction basis. So they kind of have a dual revenue structure there. Um, and 71% of their customers used all three products versus 44% in 2019. So uh, really these restaurants are relying on Olo for more than just mobile orders. Uh, I mean, that's sort of the bread and butter, but um, the uh, average contract length is about three years. Um, and if you're thinking, wow, this probably saw a massive boost due to COVID, yes, it did see growth. But remember that 
though there was a lot more off-premise orders, restaurant spend as a whole came down. Yeah, uh, a lot more people were buying groceries and shopping or uh, just cooking at home. It was like so a tailwind offset. Yeah, it was like a tailwind at a headwind. Um, but a little bit about the history. Olo was actually founded as Go Mobo in 2005. I kind of missed the old name uh, <laughs> by Noah Glass in New Haven, Connecticut. And it started as a mobile app that would allow users to make pre-orders by text message to coffee shops. Uh, but at the time, less than 5% of people had smartphones. So it, uh I guess that the market wasn't really there yet. I think Noah Glass was pretty bullish on smartphones though. Uh, there's a lot of interviews with him. So feel free to look up those. Uh, in an interview, he said, I showed the idea to an angel investor who said, I believe in you. If you believe in this idea enough to quit your job and tell Harvard Business School that you're not going to show up in the fall, I will give you half a million dollars to fund a launch of this company. It was a no brainer for me. It felt like the right time in the world for this idea. Um, so since that point, they've also been very capital efficient. They've raised less than $100 million since inception. For reference, they are uh, much larger than $100 million. So they it's do, not like yeah. an Uber. And they do like $100 million in revenue. So. Right. Um, and they IPO'd less than a month ago. So that's kind of the background. Yeah. All right. I'll hit industry landscape competition. Uh, consumer spend on restaurants is projected to hit about $1.1 trillion by 2024. Obviously, all those you know, market here is a lot smaller than that because they're just a tiny subset of that spend, but they think they're at about $7 billion with their current market, which would be these chains um, that they're going after. But if they expend to all different types of restaurants, probably outside of fine dining, which we wouldn't really want this, um, that will hit to $40 billion. Um, And I'm not sure if that's just in the US or also international, but either way, they're not really worried about the market opportunity as kind of a headwind for them. Um, you might think, all right, well, this is just kind of a small part of the ordering process, but it is in such a large industry and uh, compared to their their revenue numbers currently, they're not gonna really run up into any saturation walls. Um, around half of consumers say instant and on-demand ordering for restaurants is important and that they will leave for another restaurant if digital ordering is, a, is like a bad process. And I'm getting this from the S1. So obviously they were looking at studies to paint Olo in a good light, but that definitely rings true. Um, Brad, you have anything on that? Yeah. All this is a good point to make. All this is from the S1, but I, they did do a pretty darn good job of like here that this is from the National Restaurant Association. This is from another hospitality group. So they didn't source that much internally, which I really appreciated. And those numbers make, I mean, they just make intuitive sense. Like We've all have, I think everyone has probably gone through that where you order from some place or you try to, and the process is so bad yeah. that you're like, all right, I'm going to try somewhere else. Yeah. And the, uh, I mean, I think I remember Noah Glass also saying that off premise orders, so stuff where you weren't there and eating in, uh, ended up, I think, making up a majority of the orders uh, for um, restaurants prior to COVID. Prior to COVID, I, yeah. It doesn't seem right, but it sounds like. The growth was already there. It was moving in the right direction. 2020 gave them a big little bit of stimulus, I think. Uh, but another interesting note that I didn't really know or would think, and I think I tweeted this and a lot of people were like, nah, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, I don't know, look, the study. It's it's just the study, it's not my opinion. But uh, apparently 64% of consumers prefer to order through first party. So something where you're like on say Chipotle's app instead of DoorDash or Uber Eats. What are you guys' thoughts on that? 100%, couldn't agree more. I absolutely hate, I I think DoorDash and Grubhub are the dumbest apps. I hate the service. I hate them too. Brad, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I'm going to echo that. And also, I really love supporting restaurants when I'm ordering food from them. And and if I know that if I'm ordering through them, they're going to make more, it's going to be a more profitable sale for them. I'm probably not in the majority thinking that, but for me specifically, that that's a, that's a factor. Yeah. yeah I'm also I agree just worried. Too. I'm worried, like, I'm worried either the menus are wrong or, uh, there's just too many moving parts with DoorDash involved. Usually when I go, uh, to like a direct apps solution, I also end up, I'm, I'm not really a delivery person anyways, but, um, I don't know. It just feels like they that supports the restaurant a little more than DoorDash, especially with all the articles you've seen where like they have yeah. predatory pricing with some well, restaurants. Yeah, the fifteen to thirty percent take rate. Um, that's like all of some companies' operating margins, um, especially SMBs, which I guess Olo isn't really going after right now. So I don't know. All right, anything else on this competitors? Chowno's competitors, although or is a competitor. Excuse me. Uh, they go after SNBs with a similar offering to Olo. Oh, this could be a potential acquisition to enter that market. There's Slice, which is going straight after pizza. Although that doesn't really make sense. Um, it feels like that Silicon Valley episode. Um, yeah. Adjacent competitors. DoorDash is about to be a direct competitor. Uh, they are launching the white label product, which I assume we're going to talk about on the second half of the show. There's all the other food delivery services, which aren't necessarily competitors, but are adjacent to them. There's Square, Clover, Part Technology, Wix, Toast. They're kind of, they work with Olo and you could kind of maybe see them trying to go with a competing offering to them. And for example, you can maybe make the argument Square could buy Olo and that would make a lot of sense. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It, the, yeah. Some of these point of sales providers, uh, like the point of sales system providers have stuff that kind of competes with it. But at the same time, Olo gets bolted on to Par Technologies tablet. Yeah. Like you can. They're working together right now. Right. right. So uh, it's one of those partnerships, frenemies kind of thing. Yeah. All right, Brad, do you have anything on management and ownership? Yes, I do. So back to Noah Glass. He is 39 years old, uh, founder-led Olo. Um, he skipped, we kind of went over this, but just to, just to reiterate, he skipped Harvard Business School after graduating from Yale to start Olo. So casual. Um, he, envisioned this, <laughs> he envisioned this company while he was working as a pizza delivery boy. Um, and, and he just, he, he, he was noticing all the things wrong with the process. And, and that kind of spurred the interest in him doing it better. Um, a little bit more about him. He is a trustee for the Culinary Institute of America. Um, he, I, I no, no one, I guess this isn't confirmed, but a lot of different sources say this. He coined the term Twitter, apparently. <laughs> so we're talking about Square maybe buying him and Dorsey maybe getting involved. And th there is a relationship there, interestingly enough. Um, and this is my favorite fact about him. His mom is a cookbook writer. So he grew up around food, <laughs> he grew up around food presentation. Um, and yeah, so the COO's name is Matt Tucker. He's the former, he's a former lending tree vice president. The CFO is Peter Benavides. He's the former director of finance at, at Sony Music and board of director highlights. There are three of them to note. The former Shopify CFO, Russ Jones, Danny Meyer, who also owns 1% of the company. And for those of you who don't know, he was the founder, is the founder of Union Square as well as Shake Shack, which is a large customer of Olo. And then I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. Um, Zuhair Washington, I, I really apologize if I didn't pronounce that correctly, but she is an Expedia senior VP. And then going down to ownership. So we talked about how this is a very, very newly public company. So 
the owner ownership stats that we have are pre IPO. It's, it's pre, so we, we don't know how it really shakes out until we get an audited um, filing from them showing their post merger or, or post IPO ownership. But, but I, I would assume it wouldn't be that, that different and, and that, that off from, from pre. So as of the pre IPO ownership, Noah Glass owned 9% of the float, an investment bank called Rain Group, um, and specifically Brandon Gardner was the trustee of this ownership, owns 28% of the company. And David Frankel, who Noah calls his mentor, owns 10.7% of the company. And then in terms of institutional ownership, th- those are the institutions that, that have um, heavy ownership in the company right now. And, and we have to wait on Vanguard or BlackRock. Yeah, just to start uh, start their uh, suction cup stuff and start buying up all the float, huh? I, uh, I wonder if uh, the David Frankel or Noah's mentor is the guy that fronted the capital at the start. Uh, he did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they've been, um, they, they, they've had a relationship for a very long time. Um, and yeah, and, and it seems like Danny Meyer is also um, maybe not a mentor, but I, I do love the fact that the founder of Shake yeah. owns 1% of the float and is on the board of directors. I, I was, I was, I like that to see that. Yeah, it's a great advisor to have. Um, I'll hit valuation quick market cap as uh, it, it's a pretty volatile. So these numbers might be a bit off at market cap. When I was looking, it was about 4.2 billion. Ticker is OLO. Um, enterprise value, though, post IPO is probably closer to about 3.7 billion since they have a lot of cash post IPO. So I'd really look at that number. But either way, we're at a premium valuation here. EVA to sales of 38. EBITDA gross profit of 46. Uh, So that kind of shows, if you look at those two numbers, gross profit is really strong, or sorry, gross margin is really strong. And then EV to operating income is north of 200. So, you know, premium valuation here, looks like they issue quite a bit of stock, nothing egregious, nothing at like Palantir levels like we were seeing, but we'll see more like a few quarters post IPO, kind of how their stock comp um, goes. And that's just kind of something you got to track. Don't think like, all right, they do stock comp, can't invest. You just kind of got to look, all right, how much is this going to impact my valuation estimates here? Okay. I'll hit earnings. Uh, in 2020, Olo had 98 million in revenue. Uh, that was growing 94% year over year. 6% of that though was professional services revenue. So and that is like uh, integration. Yeah, bro. You know, that's, that's not stuff that's higher margin, but I would say I think ninety four percent of it is yeah. their subscription. Stuff. Do you ignore that, Brad, or is that is that part of? Uh, yeah, sort of, because it's 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 like it's the very beginning of, of a consumer relationship. So the, the revenue is a lot different and a lot less like, long lasting than than the subscription and transaction revenue they're racking up. So yeah, yeah, and if if they are, uh, hopefully that doesn't. That's like a front cost, so it's yeah. not like that's yeah. that's not as recurring. Yeah. Uh, but the GMV in 2020, or the gross volume, was 14.6 billion dollars. Uh, they had 81% overall gross margins, but their platform revenue, so the uh, not the professional services, has 85% gross margins. Um, they had 16 million in operating income this year. That's about an 18% operating margin. Uh, about 20 million in free cash flow. Uh, they had a 120% net revenue retention rate. Their enterprise brand uh, retention rate on average is 99%. So that's low. That's uh, the brands with 50 or more locations. That's so strong. That's really strong. Yeah, Basically, good number. They and that is Brad. Yeah, do you have some? Just to um, add in, that's 91% of their total locations too. So that they're not just saying 
this small group of, of our right. clients we retain really well. That is most of their clients. And there was like a tiny bit of nuance to that stat. I think uh, it's people that have kept the mobile ordering solution. Um, that's what the stat said. So some form of Olo's products. So maybe something had a portion of that had two modules or whatever, and they peeled back to one. I don't know. Um, but the people that have been with Olo stay with Olo. It's basically what that stat shows. Yeah. And that net revenue retention rate will tell you kind of the, not pricing power, but a bit of churn and a bit of like revenue growth from existing customers too. Yeah. And just more, there are probably more transactions uh, because of COVID. So that probably helped the retention rate as well. Um, Stock-based compensation as a percentage of revenue is about 5%. So not too bad, uh, especially for a company that's young. That's not dilution. That is just SBC as a percentage of revenue. Yep. And then when you have to factor then, you got to think about, all right, what sales multiple are they trading at? So at this current price, it's probably not going to be that dilutive. But you have to remember when they do these, it's just all estimates. So it's like, there's, it's not locked in stone what your dilution is, the share right. stock options are. But that, that's something we really can't cover on the podcast. Before we hit the break, we're going to talk balance sheet and liquidity. Brad, what do you have? Sure. And then so just a quick note on that 120% net revenue retention. For those of you who are interested in the company, I would continue cross-referencing that with percentage of people who are adapting three modules or if they, or if they add more modules, just to make sure that that retention isn't like Ryan is sending people um, switching from two to one modules, but staying with two or going to three. And, and I think those two stats combined are really informative. But moving on to balance sheet and liquidity. So pristine is the word for, for this. Um, Pre-IPO, they had 76 million in cash and virtually zero debt. As Ryan just mentioned, they're cash flow positive. Uh, they do have credit revolvers in place for 35 million and 18.6 million of that has been drawn at an interest rate of the greater between 4.5% or the Pacific Western prime rate plus 20 bips. So getting back to finance school there. Um, <laughs> so they, their interest expense for 2020 was $200,000. So there's really, I mean, the, the debt is, 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 I don't wanna say irrelevant, but it's very small. Um, in the IPO, they raised north of $400 million. So as Brett was saying, uh, the EV is 3.7 million. Well, well the market cap's 4.2. I, I have the same metrics myself. So, I, I, so, so yeah, and then, Throughout the S1, they did hint at taking out debt or new revolvers, but I mean, most S1s do this. So I think they just kind of have, have to say that if there's any chance in the future of them taking out debt or revolvers. Um, but pristine is, is the name, is the, is the uh, adjective I would use for this balance sheet. Yeah. And I, I think they do have to say like we could possibly take out debt or whatever, but now with $400 million in cash from the IPO, I don't imagine there's a whole lot of reason to. Yeah, unless they're going to go after some new markets to go back to uh, losing money. I mean, it seems like they should close out that debt too, but either way, it's not going to be that big of a big of a factor. Um, all right, we're, that, that closed out the first half. Um, we're going to take an ad break and then get back to the second half. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. 
Advanced security must be enabled in the panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. Next up, we are going to talk competitive advantages. And now I think this one will be a bit different than when we talked about GoPro and we were kind of gasping at straws. Uh, but we'll kick things off with Brad. What do you have here? I see I see the Olo private label, white label approach as is a very strong competitive advantage. So most chains and users, as we said from these surveys, and I've looked around and there are several other surveys that consider it, or that, I'm sorry, that verify it, want to order through a restaurant, not through a marketplace. And, and Olo is the one enabling these restaurants to realize that higher margin direct to consumer sale while plugging into every single d- delivery service provider and allowing them to compete for your business rather than just kind of accepting what that, whatever fee they, they, they tell you they're charging at that point in time. And, and, and what, what else, or the other important thing that this does is it really gives the restaurants back control of their data, back control of their consumer data. So when, when DoorDash or Grubhub or, or Uber Eats are, are taking in these orders, they are predominantly not sharing these consumer insights with the restaurants. So they are, they, they are keeping it for themselves for the most part. And, and because of that, restaurants are making decisions that are, are less holistic and take less of an accurate bird's eye view approach of their business than they could. And Olo is, is giving them back their data, it's giving them back their brand, and it's giving them back their margins all through this private label approach. And, and we'll talk about DoorDash a little later, I think, but DoorDash is sort of flirting with this idea of adding in a private label product, but it's important to, to note that even when these restaurants are plugging into DoorDash's private label approach, they're still competing with DoorDash's marketplace, and they are still pl- they are still limiting themselves to the driver ecosystem, the delivery ecosystem that DoorDash has. They are not they're not gaining access to Uber Eats. They're not gaining access to Grubhub. They're not gaining access to Postmates or Deliveroo or, or, or any of those other things. They are so so while it's private label, it, it still is more limiting than Olo, and, and I think Olo is the only pure private label player among. Among these giant chains, there are there are smaller players that you were talking about that that gives them this holistic control of their business. Yeah, that was a long pitch. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. That's okay. a and we can talk about the DoorDash part now. But it's like uh, Olo provides the restaurants a lot of control, whereas DoorDash, I feel like, is fighting its stakeholders at every corner. But you see with Uber, they had to raise a $250 million fund to like convince people, incentivize people to work for them. And that's just on the driver's side too. That's a, or sorry, that's a little different thing. Go ahead, Brad. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. And this should have been the first thing I said in the episode, but I own shares of Olo and I'm a bull and love the company. So yeah, um, full disclosure, full disclosure. <laughs> We're covered. We, we got the disclosure uh, at the end, but no, yeah, we should. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So just know that I like the company a lot as I'm saying nice things about it. Yeah. You're right. I just don't see why uh, a restaurant would choose to go exclusively exclusively with DoorDash and shut off from the dispatch uh, module that Olo provides where you can pick the, the delivery service that you want. Yeah. Um, but I'll get to my competitive advantage. And that's that it's scalable across multiple locations. So it's really, it is hard for me not being on the restaurant side to distinguish where the competitive advantage is in there, like why it's so hard to get something that scales across multiple locations. But 
uh, Wix has Speedy Tab. They made that acquisition, and that's like digital ordering. Uh, Square offers digital ordering services, but those are meant for like mom and pop shops, and they're meant to be individual, not scalable. So I was trying to look for stuff, and I guess one guy on Reddit, uh, which don't get all your analysis on Reddit. No, that's good. That's a deep dive research right there. Really in the. <laughs> uh, he's, and this had like 425,000 likes, so that'll validate it. But uh, he said, nobody with a brain would use Square out of real business. Their processing rates are egregiously high, and the functionality of their register is far inferior to other options. Interesting. Maybe not the terminology I'd use, but the, uh, it's... I think it is designed for people. Those solutions are designed for individual stores. And yeah. I mean, these big natural national chains and sometimes international chains, they need something that can be applied to multiple locations. And Olo seems like they're the only one that's really providing that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't Brad, know why. You know more, maybe. Do you have any other insights on that? Or is that correct? Um, yeah. You, you, I think you guys know more than you're giving yourself credit for okay. that. That's pretty accurate to me. All right, I'll hit mine. Uh, switching costs, uh, I took the easy one here. As long as the product stays good, there's no reason to leave. We see that in those churn numbers they gave out that you know may have been a little biased, but, uh, and then also in that net retention rate. Um, you know, and during like, so over the, the last five years and probably over the next 10 or maybe only five, there's this big change in restaurants where uh, like if you saw like after say even like World War II, yet basically the way that restaurants were done up until like 2000, 2010, there's this big change where we're getting all these platforms and stuff like that and everything's going to shake out. It's really important to grab customers because you could have this, these restaurants as a customer for the next decade and beyond, or maybe even 20 or 30 years where, you know, People think of it, all right, the industry is super dynamic right now. A lot of things are changing, digital ordering, pickup, delivery, all that stuff. But eventually things are going to normalize for whoever kind of wins out or what the consumers want. When that happens, it's going to be important to grab market share. And when they do, I would think there's high switching costs with a product like Olo. Yeah. And I think that's proven in the retention rate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Future growth opportunities. Brad, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm going to split mine into two. Uh, so the first one, part of that Rails product that they rolled out is a is a Google partnership. So with that Google partnership in Rails and, and the transactional revenue they're going to collect, it's really important to note that Olo is already, Olo is already signed on with 50% of the fastest growing private market chain restaurants in the United States. So as these restaurants grow and as they expand nationally, that's going to be a very powerful revenue driver. And then B is, is another future growth opportunity of their on-premise serve product. So this is a subset of ordering in which they have, this is not unique, but, but they're building it out to kind of create more of a holistic product offering, but they're trying to eliminate menus and they're trying to eliminate um, as many touch points as they can on, from, from the in-person dining point of view. So You'll take your phone and you'll scan a QR code on, on a table. I've actually done this at a few restaurants and, and I asked them and it was recent. They said, yeah, it's Olo. Um, so that was cool for me <laughs> because I'm a star. You're like, huh? oh, I own the stock. <laughs> Mark, check me. Uh, and so, yeah, that on-premise business, while some of these other products may see some headwinds from a reopening and a normalization, that will see some tailwinds from a reopening and a normalization. So that will be interesting to keep an eye on. Okay, Ryan. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's hard, like they serve such a, 
specific function that it's hard to come up with a whole bunch of future growth opportunities. Uh, but they, the ones that they mentioned on their S1, both of these were mentioned there. Uh, a lot of their brands that they service are uh, international brands, global brands. Um, I guess maybe there's some Applebee's in Mexico or whatever, you know, Jimmy John's abroad. So uh, selling inter- to those international chains uh, is another way they can expand. Uh, they said they intend on doing that, hopefully. Uh, and then other verticals, so grocery stores, convenience stores, uh, they mentioned that they could benefit from this technology as well. You think about the uh, curbside pickup or you know, groceries are really starting to rule out that stuff, even though I think it's pointless. Um, but p- some people like those curbside pickup things, so uh, just maybe moving into those avenues as well. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I took SMBs, so that's small and medium-sized businesses. They highlight this a bit as something that might be two to three years out, but is not in their current product offering. They're only going after those larger places. So the ordering process at a lot of these restaurants can be difficult. It's typically not the greatest experience. so I think there's an opportunity there. They don't have as much to spend. There's higher bankruptcy rates there. Um, you know, they're not going to have as much cash. They're like, all right, well, we already use Square. We already use Clover or whatever. We're just going to go with our current process. So it might be tougher for OO to get into that market. They might have to spend more on marketing. Um, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Do they have a chance to get into the small and medium-sized business? I think it's easier to go that way than it is to move to larger businesses from smaller businesses. Yeah. I think it's easier to go backwards than to try to scale out across multiple locations. But I also don't know that that's not an area or a side that I would know. I feel like that's more like restaurant operators probably understand that better. Yeah. Brad. I just think their, their value is really uniform tech integration across tons and tons of, of locations that are, that, that don't traditionally do a great job communicating with each other. So they, I, I do see SMB as, an avenue for growth, but they'll have to kind of recreate a, a, a value prop um, with with, uh, with with the um, economically efficient order or with the economically efficient delivering, um, being able to price compete or price match. But I, I don't see the the real the real like value creation of the integration as as that strong here. Perhaps I think the module that applies uh, across any size restaurant. Uh, is probably the dispatch, like managing who you pick as your delivery service provider. So maybe start with that as your inroad. Uh, I, I imagine they already have their, I imagine the point of sales provider for the SMBs already has some sort of ordering solution. Yeah. yeah, It's hard to tell. I'll say, I don't know. I don't know on that one. All right. Highlights and low lights, Brad, uh, keep things off. Yeah, and just to repeat, I own the stock. So um, I'm going to say nice things and just know I own the stock. Uh, my my highlight is the business model. So I love the delivery space, but I hate the actual economics of delivering. And what this company does is allows me to gain exposure to things moving a lot more than they used to and a lot more quickly than they used to without, without giving myself exposure to these delivery drivers that um, aren't super profitable for these marketplaces. So I, I do love the business model and it shows in the fact that they're growing at nearly hundred percent year over year and, and they're putting out free cash flow. So that is not, I would venture to guess that that's not on purpose <laughs> that, that they're making free cash. I would hope that they're 
really sinking their teeth into growth at this phase in the game. But I mean, that's just not something you see very often. And it was very encouraging. And what this did, I think, is allowed them to get to their IPO while only raising $100 million in cash. And it allowed them to go public while having this pristine balance sheet, which I now, and then they hinted at this in their S1, see them taking that firepower and, and really, they didn't tell us what this is going to be, but they kind of flirted with it a lot. But seeing how they can replace some of the delivery service providers that they rely on so heavily in, in the delivery process. So I, my, my guess on what that means is as good as yours, but I'm excited to see what all this flexibility that the business model creates will allow them to do. And then that kind of transitions pretty well into the low light, which is they got 20% or 19.3, I think, or something like that percent of their revenue from DoorDash in 2020. So there, there's, there's not no customer or concentration risk here. DoorDash is very much so an integral part of their business. And despite the fact that they do plug into eight delivery service providers, DoorDash is the largest. So DoorDash saying, we're not going to let you, um, we're not going to let you take orders on our behalf. I don't see that happening um, just based on the fact of how many giant chains that Olo already serves and, and how the restaurants are sort of in control and they are more and more shifting to Olo. And I think DoorDash is just kind of going to kind of have to deal with that. But you can take that with a grain of salt because again, I do really like the company, um, but DoorDash, it is a threat. And, and while I don't see it as preventing Olo's growth going forward or their success, it definitely could, could, that could change. And I'll be keeping an eye on it for sure. Yep. Yeah, I I mean, we saw that uh, lawsuit thing come out, but it's so weird that that was uh, oh, yeah. at least yeah. like it felt yeah. like some someone that just wanted to buy the dip was like, let's let's release an article or door. Or, I lawsuit. mean, yeah, it seems like DoorDash might have released it too. Brad, what do you what do you what are your yeah? It, so this is from 2018, um, the the feud, and then between DoorDash and Olo and. DoorDash saying you charged us seven million too much over the course of our contract, which has been four years. So, so it's really in terms of the impact it could have on what the income statement looks like right now in their S one and the balance sheet. It's going to have no impact. Um, and, and almost this sounds kind of weird, but I'm almost more concerned about the fact that Olo has to spend money on legal fees and has to divert some of their attention to this feud more so than the result of the lawsuit, if, if that makes sense, because it's a young growth company and I want them focusing completely on growth right now. Yeah. That can bog them down. Yeah. yeah. It's almost, it's a good case study in customer concentration risk. Cause you always see uh, people go, well, you know, they have so much revenue from one customer. What if something happens? And it's like, this is a testament to the platform because whatever, let's say you've pissed off DoorDash, they can't leave uh, your additional volume to their platform. Um, and right now, it seems like that's a business or a stock that rides on revenue growth. So, yeah. Uh, what are what are what are your thoughts on big chains going exclusive with delivery partners? I know Chipotle is like exclusive with DoorDash. Is that a concern at all? Yeah, and I almost think it's more. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a concern, and and I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't um, dismiss the competitive landscape because there is a lot of competition here. I just I just look at all the the chains that they're racking up, and, and that to, to me that that's that's the proof I need to to yeah. know that you're really delivering for their users. They might not go for the highest. Domino's probably won't use them because they can just build something custom. Yeah, Chipotle is yeah. interesting. Domino's as well because they 
built that stuff in house. Uh, Almost their ordering service, like um, KFC and whoever. What what is Yum own? That 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 group of is that Domino? No, that's not Domino. Taco Bell. It's Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, I'm, I'll hit my highlights. Um, they do have a lot of big name customers, which is validating. Uh, not only uh, that, like, hey, this is a platform that's real, uh, but uh, that these were big enough chains in my opinion that could have spent some money to build it in-house and it was good enough for them to say all right we'll just stick with olo um i really like management uh, i think the business has good economics and i've used sweetgreens mobile ordering service and i think the product's actually great um my low lights though and this might come off as a little bit odd but i sort of find myself questioning the addressable market because right now they have 400 brands um if you don't have some sort of digital ordering service by now as a big chain, I mean, I feel like you have to have something. So that isn't to say they can't steal more, uh, they can't get more customers, but it's going to be a little more costly to do so if you have to steal them away from an existing product. The other part is they talk about cross-selling or upselling as an opportunity, but 71% of their customers already have all three modules. They might go to more than three modules in the future, but I understand what you're that's just that's where my concerns lie. Um, but I would also say there's that quote: "Good management always finds a way to expand their TAM." Yeah. Uh, I I like Noah Glass. I think he can find new ways to grow. Yeah, you have to consider the TAM too. Um, the top ten brands probably aren't going to ever use them. Maybe they will. Um, so that's also like not like you can't think right. They're going to get McDonald's someday. It's probably not happening. Yeah. All right. I'll hit my uh, yeah. my highlights. High margin, high switching costs. I think there is a clear path to growth. Now you might worry about, yeah, they're not going to grow at 100 percent every year from here. But I do think there is a clear path to growth. Uh, so that nothing to say. Low lights. I do worry about the competitive landscape from someone like, I mean, this may have just been my initial thoughts, but someone like Square stepping in and competing with them. They already have the inroads. I mean, we saw that Reddit thing from uh, Ryan, but I do think that. They do Square or someone like them has the potential, could be Clover too, to put in a competitor. Maybe I'm misguided here, but I'm not sure. I think it's also a tough industry to operate in. There's a lot of capital going after the growth. Um, and DoorDash has a history of going basically like, quote, scorched earth here and forcing everyone to start losing money. So when they launch the white label product, that gives me a bit scared because DoorDash is not afraid to basically kill everyone, including themselves. <laughs> and like, you know, everyone loses money. Great. We win. Uh, but it will be a solid test to Olo's product in mo- over the next few years. If Olo is still doing well, that is a testament to their um, competitive advantage. If, if they have. If I they think have uh, Dan McMurtry once said that the food delivery industry is like a bunch of people swimming or floating miles offshore trying to kill each other. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> you died first, but they're still floating miles offshore. So, yes. Olo might be, Olo might be, yeah, Olo's the coast guard, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Brad, anything else before we get to more or less interested? No, I think that pretty much covered everything. All right. Well, bro, let's wrap things up. More or less interested, Brad. I think we know your answer uh, because you do own it already, but uh, interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I should I should uh, be a little more specific about how I plan on investing in this company because I do own a little bit. 
um, and I love the business, but sort of oddly, I'm finding myself rooting against the stock currently um, because it is expensive. Uh, and there's, yeah, there's really no way around the fact that it's expensive today. It is a new IPO and, and IPOs normally have a really fun way of giving us juicy opportunities to add more to companies we love. Um, so I do own, I think like 30 or 40% of what I want overall in the company, maybe closer to 50. Now I added a little bit, um, but I'm very much so looking for stock price weakness in order to add to my position. Um, I'm very interested in this company. I'm going to own it for a long time, but uh, I'm expecting the stock to be extremely volatile for the time being. And we'll look to take advantage of that. Okay. Ryan, more interested. Um, I really, the business checks all the boxes, management checks all the boxes. Um, there wasn't any big flaws for me. The only thing with like, you know, we talk about valuation and it's, it's usually a good sign when the only knock on a business is valuation. Yeah, but yeah. with that said, like, even if you, you could love the business more than anything in the world and you can still be wrong. That's why it's yeah. good to have a margin of safety and we, why we look for cheaper valuations. Right now it's keeping me away. Uh, it's on the watch list. So it's not like something that'll go on there. It is on the watch list. I'm waiting. Uh, yeah, I put it, I, uh, so I put it on my watch list as well. So more interesting. I literally put it on the watch list. More interested, but uh, on the watch list for now. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll reiterate that. I honestly hope it gets cut in half. I don't know. I hope the stock gets cut in half because that would make sure. it a lot more appealing. Um, the business looks great. Yeah, nothing else to say. I don't know. The, uh, we'll see if they can execute. Brad, what's your stock for next week? Yeah, so we were we voted between Olo and Coursera last week. So let's do Coursera for next week. Yes. All right, good. Good stuff. I like that one. Yeah, that's Whatever. interesting. Education tech, right? I don't even know what it does. It's education tech. I've taken a class with it before. It was pretty it was it was basically a YouTube video, but it was, I don't know, it was good. I got my real estate license, I think, or something. I either got it from there or maybe Real Estate Express or I don't know. Um, but it's a cool company and excited to check it out. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Um, remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. 